0: ending for the reading of scripture we're in Matthew chapter 8 verses 23 through 34 again that's Matthew chapter 8 verse 33 no I'm sorry verse 23 through 34 hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word and when he got into the boat his disciples followed him And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when they had come to the other side of the country of the Geridians, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd Rushed down the steep bank into the sea and, and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city, and they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Again, our Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that we would again see your Son high and lifted up, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd, and that we would offer ourselves to him, that, Lord, you would work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we would receive a message, not from man, but a message from God, that you would speak to us this morning, and that you would work in us. And we ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Authority is something in our life that we, are, uh, that we constantly have to recognize whether we like it or not. Authority is something that we see all over the place. You know, when we're children, we're constantly faced with the authority of our parents. They're able to tell us where to be, what to do, and how to act in their house. Uh, when we become teenagers, and maybe even before that, we begin to challenge that authority, to push back on it a little bit. Uh, We may talk back more. We might stomp our feet and talk under our breath whenever we're told to do something. And eventually, that leads to discipline, a showing of of authority. Uh, But authority is not just in the home. We see authority all over the place. Now, we see it uh, throughout the world. There are ranks in the military and in law enforcement. The government has different levels of authority all the way up to the top. But the Bible routinely tells us over and over again that there is a divine authority. That there is an authority that is higher than every authority on the earth and we are to submit to it. Not only recognize it, but submit. In our passage today, we are shown that Jesus holds divine authority and that since he does, we are to recognize it and react to it. We'll see Christ's authority over creation, his authority over evil, and lastly, we'll see our reaction to his authority. So look with me at verse 23. It says, uh, we'll see Christ's authority over creation. So Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's just healed a leper. He's healed the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law and many other people that have diseases and that have demons. And So he and the disciples are about to cross the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not an ocean. It's just a huge lake. In the north of Israel, and his, he and his disciples get onto the boat and they sail to the other side. And while they're on the water, a storm kicks up. Now, this is fairly common to the Sea of Galilee due to the geography of the area and just the way everything is. Uh, storms were known, violent storms were known to come about kind of suddenly on the water. Apparently, this storm is particularly bad. And we figure that out from verse 24. It's so bad that it's swamping the boats and it also is so bad that these disciples, some of whom are fishermen, that spent their entire lives on this body of water are scared that they're about to die. That's how bad this storm is. It's not just this little thing. So they go to Jesus and the verb that they use that shows that they believe they are actively perishing. They are saying, we are about to die, Jesus. Wake up. And so Jesus wakes up. He's asleep for two reasons, though. He's asleep, firstly, because he's tired. Because Jesus was then and is now a man. He is a man in heaven, just like he was a man on earth. Humans get tired. So Jesus took the opportunity, after healing many people, to take a nap because he was tired. But secondly, Jesus is asleep because he trusts God the Father. Jesus isn't worried about this storm because he knows that his father holds him in his hand. Unlike Jonah of the Old Testament who fell asleep in a boat because he didn't care about God, Jesus is asleep because he knows God will preserve him. He knows the father will take care of him and his disciples. But the disciples wake Jesus up anyway. They wake him up in fear, great fear, and they ask him to save them because they are perishing. In Mark chapter 4, verse 38, this is the parallel passage to this, they ask Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? So they are so distraught, believing that this may, be, may well be the very day that they die. And they want Jesus to do something about it. So Jesus wakes up, and in verse 26, he rebukes them. And he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? that might seem a little harsh these men believe that they're about to die and Jesus wakes up and says in a sense what's wrong with you why are you so scared calm down I'm right here and this is the reason why Jesus says this not because Jesus doesn't care about their fear but let's think about it for a minute the disciples have just heard the sermon on the mount They just heard Jesus say, I have come to fulfill the law, meaning he claims to be the Messiah. They just heard uh, him call God his father, which Jews did not do. So he's claiming to be God's son. So he's claiming to be divine. And in chapter 7, he says that he is the one that decides who enters the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, I am the judge of the living and the dead. In other words, he's saying, I'm God. And then they just watched him heal a leper, a centurion's servant without being anywhere near him, and Peter's mother-in-law, and people that have diseases, and cast out demons. The disciples have ample evidence that they should not be scared of this storm. But they are. Jesus is trying to remind them that who is in the boat with them. They've forgotten that God incarnate is in that boat asleep. So while they're afraid, their fear should be tempered with faith in who Jesus is and who God is. And that's why Jesus gives them a rebuke. Not because he's insensitive to their fear or their concerns, but because he is reminding them who is in the boat. So he not only does that with his words, but he does it with his actions. Look at verse 26. After he rebukes the disciples, he he rose and rebukes the wind and the sea. And there is great calm. We learn in Mark that he says, Peace, be still. And the the storm ceases, and again there's great calm. But that doesn't stop the disciples from being scared. It says in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, that they are filled with great fear when they ask, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they are so scared... Because they are good Jews and they understand that only God has the ability to look at creation and say, stop, and it does. Only God is able to command creation. They have also read the Psalms that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Old Testament said that it is His voice that is over the waters, that He calms the rolling seas, that it is His voice that causes the thunder To take flight. In other words, Jesus is doing this miracle to confirm what he already said about himself in the Sermon on the Mount, to show them that he is God. That's the whole point of all of Jesus' miracles. Is not to prove that he's God, but to prove that what he said, that he is God, is right. Because Jesus is a prophet, showing that his words are true. Oftentimes when we are confronted with the power and the holiness of God, we are filled with fear when we realize who God is and what he can do. And we're supposed to have a holy fear of God. It causes us to reverence him and give him praise. It causes us to know that God can and will protect us, no matter what we face in this world. That holy fear should drive us to know Jesus and knowing that he alone can secure our place with the Father. You know, when I was a little boy, I got in trouble my fair share. My daddy and and my mom are here. They can tell you that that's true. Uh, My brother would tell you that I did not get in enough trouble, uh, but all siblings say that. Uh, But I must admit that when I got in trouble, I was scared. Uh, Nothing in the world could put more fear into my heart than my daddy looking at me and saying, you just wait till we get home. That's scary. I don't know if that scares you. That scared you and your daddy said it, but it scared me. I'm sure you can relate, though. I wasn't really scared of my dad, but I was kind of scared of what he could do because he grew up in South Gastonia. He's a veteran of multiple wars. He's taller than me, stronger than me. I'm not scared of my dad, but I'm a little scared of what he can do. But that fear also allowed me to be comforted by his presence when there was a thunderstorm, a windstorm. When we walked down the streets of uh, cities that might have been dangerous, I wasn't worried at all because my dad was next to me. The same fear that kind of scared me when I got in trouble comforted me whenever I knew there was danger. It's the same way with God except far greater. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit watch over his people. We are covered by the arms of the one who controls all things. So do we feel that holy fear? Oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we just don't really recognize who God is for who he truly is. We think he's this old man with a beard in the sky. Or he's this angry father waiting to punish us when we come home. Or sometimes we think he's just someone that we can ignore without consequence. Give the bare minimum of commitment to And he'll be happy. All of those are dead wrong. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the ruler of all things, visible and invisible, and there is no end to his power and his kingdom. He has sent his Son to explain himself to us, but also to allow us to purge the debt of sin that caused us to be his enemies. Do you truly know him? Not as you think of him, but as he truly is. He has given us the Bible. We can read of him. He has given us the church so that we can come together and learn his word together. Beloved, get to know the real God. Do not settle for a shallow relationship with Jesus that is only active at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. He demands that we give every minute, every second of our life to him. So we see Christ's authority over creation. And secondly... We see Christ's authority over evil. Look at verse 28. So when they reach the other side, they come to the country of the Garideans. It's also known as the Geriseans, just different names for the same place. This was a city in Israel that's on the Sea of Galilee, but it's a Gentile city. Jews don't really live there. And we see the parallel story in Mark 5 and Luke 8. Now in Mark and Luke, there is one demon-possessed man, but in Matthew, there's two. Now this has caused a lot of people that think they are smart to write a lot about it and how the Bible might be wrong, but uh, they've kind of forgotten one thing. If there's two, there's one. Matthew gives a condensed version, but he adds the detail that there is two. There's a reason for that. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews about the Messiah. In the Old Testament, you had to have two witnesses for a legal testimony to be counted. So Matthew's point is this. There are two demon-possessed men because even though these are demons, they are telling the truth. And you should listen to what they said. Because Jesus doesn't deny what they say. So, let's see what they do say. Jesus comes and these two demon-possessed men show up and they're so strong and fierce in verse 28 that no one is able to pass by them. And they're living in the tombs. These men have a miserable existence. They are outcasts by society. Jews would have considered them unclean because they live in the tombs and they have demons, unclean spirits. Mark 5 tells us that they cried out and they cut themselves with stones. They are miserable. But when Jesus shows up on the shore, they make a beeline to him. Again, Mark tells us that they fall down in front of him and they cry out before him. And they say, Jesus, what do you have to do with us, o, o Son of God? They confess that he is the Son of God. That's the second time in the book of Matthew that someone called Jesus the Son of God. The first person to do it was God the Father from heaven. The second and third people to do it are demon-possessed men. Either way, the testimony is the same. and Either way, it's true. Jesus is God's Son. The demons would know this because they're fallen angels. They were created by Jesus. And, they were, and he was there whenever they were cast down. He is probably the one that cast them down. They, are, they not only recognize who Jesus is, though, but they recognize his authority over them. Look at verse 29. They say, Have you come to torment us before the time? The demons recognize there's a time that they will be tormented. They will be punished by Jesus himself. That there is a time that they will be punished for everything they've done. We see that's true in Matthew 25, verse 41, where Jesus says that hell is for Satan, and his angels. Often we kind of forget that Satan is not the ruler of hell. Satan is not in hell. Job tells us that he goes back and forth on the earth. 1 Peter 5 8 says that he is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But we are also reminded that he's a lion on a leash, that he can only go as far as the Lord lets him. The demons in verse 31 they beg Jesus to cast them into the pigs. They recognize They can't do anything. They have no cards to play. So they beg Jesus to not throw them into the abyss and to to put them into the pigs. So he does, and the pigs run into the sea, and they drown. The point is, there's no struggle. Like I said, the demons have no cards to play. They fall down at the feet of Jesus. They beg for mercy, and they beg for him to not destroy them because they recognize how powerful he is. Yes, Satan is very powerful compared to us. Compared to God, it is no contest. Revelation 20, verse 10 says he will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Revelation 12, 12 says he knows his time is short. That's why he acts so fiercely. Beloved, we live in a world that is filled with evil. Be encouraged that it is evil on a leash. If Satan's on a leash, the evil men and women around us that hate God and seek to destroy us, are definitely on one too. Not only that, but they are ultimately defeated. But that deliverance from evil is not just in the future. In Mark 5.15, it says that this demon-possessed man, that he was sitting in his right mind, listening to Jesus. The deliverance from evil is now through faith in Christ. There's an old saying that misery loves company. We see it played out in our lives when people are feeling down and depressed. They like to have other people to be down and depressed with. When a criminal is arrested, they will make a deal to take other criminals down with them. Uh, there's another twist on the old phrase. It's, if I'm going down, you're all going down with me. And then, in a very real sense, that's Satan's mission. The old hymn uh, says, lo, his doom is sure. He knows it. Like we said in Revelation twelve twelve says, he knows his time is short. He's trying to deceive and agitate and take anyone with him that he can. Now, you might hear this story of demons and say, that's just a fantasy. That's not real. Something that doesn't really happen and that is only in the movies. You would be gravely mistaken. The devil and the demons are very real. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that naturally we are walking in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words... We follow Satan. But thanks be to God that 1 John 3.8 says, The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. If you have never trusted in Christ, then look to him for salvation today. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and you shall be saved. That is the only way that we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. But if you have trusted him, remember that you are under real spiritual attack. The forces of evil love to aggravate our nerves, push us to neglect God's word and obedience to it, to fly off the handle at our children or our spouse, and so many other things. The Bible tells us we have to put on the whole armor of God and do as James 4.7 says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not in our own power, but in the power of the one who has authority over Satan. Christ Jesus himself. So we see Christ's authority over creation, over evil, and lastly, Christ's reaction, or our reaction to Christ's authority. Look at verses 33 and 34. So after these pigs run into the water and are drowned, the herdsmen run into the city and they tell everyone what has happened. We see in verse 33, they especially tell them what has happened to the demon possessed men. Matthew gives us a condensed version of what happens. In Mark chapter 5, verse 15 through 20, we get the bigger story. They come to Jesus, all of these people of the city, they come to Jesus. They see this man clothed and in his right mind, listening to the words that Jesus has to say. And instead of being soothed by this, they're terrified. They are horrified to see this man uh, so calm because they're being confronted with a couple of things. First, they're being confronted with the fact that their economy just took a major hit. Mark tells us that it is 2,000 pigs that run off and into the sea. That's a huge hit to a Gentile economy. That's a lot of bacon for Gentiles to eat. The Jews would have had no part of it, but there's a lot of Gentile cities around them. There's a lot of paying customers. It's their livelihood. But they don't just see this economic problems. They also see... um, this man that was demon-possessed, these men who were demon-possessed, so strong that chains couldn't hold them, cutting themselves, howling at the moon, essentially. They're sitting down, and they're like normal people, listening to Jesus. You would be scared, too, if you saw that. If you knew men that were demon-possessed, howling at the moon, outside, roaming around the streets of Clover, and then today you saw them sitting in the front pew, we would be a little scared. But when they meet Jesus... They act like the demons do. They beg Jesus to do something. They beg him to leave. They say, please leave. He brought brought enormous change to their city, their lives, and in the face of it, they beg him to go away. They would rather have the pigs, the money, and the demon-possessed men than have Jesus there. Some have called what Jesus did by allowing these demons to destroy all these pigs harsh. But he's teaching a lesson. What's more important, 2,000 pigs or two men so tortured by demons that they were miserable and are now delivered. Our world would tell you 2,000 pigs. God tells us two men delivered from evil. These people have chosen to have the world over Jesus. They would rather have the pigs and the evil to remain in these men than to have Jesus with them. So we don't see it in Matthew, but if you turn over to Mark, just a book over, Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, verse 18, we see the correct response to what Jesus should be. It says, as he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him but said, go go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and be- began to proclaim in the Decapolis how, many, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The man begs to be a disciple of Christ, to go and follow Jesus, to be with him. But instead, Jesus says, you can do more good going around and telling everyone that you know about me and about what I have done for you. And so he does. He goes all around the Decapolis, that part of the country, and tells them. So that's what our reaction is supposed to be to Jesus' authority. When we see that Christ is God, that he has power over creation, power over evil, power over Satan himself to deliver us from sin and Satan's grip, we ought to, with excitement, tell everyone we know, everyone we're able to, about what Jesus has done for us. Jesus hasn't saved us to keep on living in our sins like it's business as usual. Jesus has saved us to have obedience to him with joy and gratitude and tell everyone that we can about him. You know, a universal experience in life is at Christmas when you get a Christmas gift. Generally, as children, we're pretty excited about it. I remember when I was a kid and I would get my gifts, we would go to my grandmother's house after, and I would take my favorite ones to show my cousin's. Yes, I was trying to show off and say, hey, look how good my gifts are, but I was excited about them. When we went back to school, that's what we talked about. We talked about our Christmas gifts. In a much greater way, we should be excited to talk about the gift of Christ, to tell our friends, our family, whoever we can, about Christ. But so often, you know, we might judge these people harshly for their reaction to what Jesus did. That's probably rightly so. But before we do, Let's have a look inward. How often do we choose things over Jesus? How often are we tempted uh, to not tell our friends or coworkers about Christ? And what if it affected the way they looked at us? What if it affected the way they think about us? What would really happen if we genuinely gave our lives to Christ? Sometimes we're very scared of what would happen if we truly submitted to Jesus. We would have to put our hobbies, our sports teams, our extracurricular activities, our our children's sports teams, all of these things, our preferences for sleep, our time just to sit around. We would put all those things second to what the Lord commands. You know, a good test of our reaction to Christ's authority is this. We should look at the time we spend throughout our week. How much time do we spend with God in his word, in prayer, with his people, in his house, and how much is spent doing other things. Other things, while not evil, in and of themselves, that we've put in God's place. In the analysis, I believe that many of us would be driven to repent of the ways that we have put the world in front of Jesus. I know that I would. Beloved, the things of this world that we placed in front of Christ, they will fade away, either when we die, or when he returns. So this morning, we have been brought face to face with who Jesus really is, and his authority. He's not a good teacher. He is not the sauce you put on your life to make it better. He is God, in human form, and he demands total submission to his authority. The choice before us is very simple. When we see that it, what it might cost to follow Jesus, will we be like the people of the city, And will we beg Jesus to depart from us? Or will we, as the old hymn says, say, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever, through eternal years the same. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.